0: We're going to continue our Advent series this morning, as I said, looking at coming home for Christmas. And that operative question or the question that has focused this series is, what would it look like if you came home and found God, found the joy, the peace, the love, and the hope of God at home or in your ordinary life? So to continue uh, that series, we're going to look at joy this morning. And so with, with that, we'll read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. This is uh, Paul's last final instructions to the church in the Christians in Thessalonica. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in high regard, in love, because of their work, and live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So far, the reading of God's Word. As I said, these are the, if you open up your, if you, if you, uh, some of you I know don't even hardly know what a book is anymore. But if you open up a real physical Bible, you'll see that this is the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And so these are his final words that he shares with them. This was a church that in one sentence was always worried about the future. This group of people were always worried about what was going to come next. Their their future together as a body, they were, were worried and very concerned about Jesus' second coming. To put it uh, a way that somebody has said before, that some Christians are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. That was the Thessalonians. And so Paul writes to them. And these are his last words. He says, Hold in high regard those who are working in the kingdom of God. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. In other words, who are not working for the kingdom of God. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, Be patient with everyone. And then he says these words which I think we struggle to make sense of. Rejoice always. Paul's last instructions to a worried church were to always find joy in one another and in God. But here's the thing about joy that all of us, I think, know or have experienced that you can make yourself smile, right, if you're forced to. But you can't really make yourself be happy. It might be easy to talk about joy, but why don't we do it all the time? We, why aren't we joyful all the time? As we open this morning, I want to talk about some of the barriers to joy that exist to joy. In my work in, as a minister here at River Park, I get to talk with all kinds of people, which is a joy for me. Younger people, older people, people whose situations and lives seem very easy from the outside, and people's who, people whose situations and lives seem very difficult. I get to know people from different ethnic groups and people with different abilities. And so I can tell you from not just from personal experience, but from my work with you as a church that it is possible to find joy in any circumstance. In other words, our circumstances or our situations are never an insurmountable barrier to joy. This doesn't mean that we always do find joy in every situation, but I do want to give you a few examples as we start. Consider people with disabilities. A person with a disability has to reckon with his or her limitations on a daily basis. Every day when they wake up, they come to terms with something that they cannot do, that they need help for from other people. But you only need to go to friendship ministries or friendship group on a Thursday night to see that these people know the joy of Jesus. It's not just that they're happy or that they sing loudly. It's that they love one another deeply. They're comfortable with each other. They love to make room for one another and for new people. There is a joy in that room and a joy in their lives that you can almost touch. Take another example. This past week I visited with Peter and Nelica Smith. Peter's been living at Care West for over 12 years and he's had health problems for over 40 years. When I asked Nelica about their difficult situation, she said, Well, I just, you just don't know any different. I just don't know any different. And then I asked her if she had a favorite Bible verse. And she suggested we read Philippians 4, verse 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The Lord is near. As I met with them, Peter and Nelica shared deep and meaningful joys about their life together over uh, almost 60 years. And I could clearly see their love even just as they sat together with one another in Peter's room. Joy is an internal reality that can be found regardless of our circumstances. But why aren't we joyful all the time? Well, it's not only because of our external circumstances, but also because of our inner realities or internal realities. And so this week, as we think about barriers to joy, I want to focus particularly on two of those barriers first on shame, and then second on regret. For the two thirds of the world who live in collectivist cultures, shame is your bad social standing. Shame is something that is given to you by other people. It affects every area of your life, including your self worth as a person. Shame means that when you walk into a room, you are a problem. Not that you just bring a problem with you, but you are the problem. That you're less than, that you're not welcome in one specific situation or in general. You might have shame because of what you did, you might have shame because of what a family member did, or you might have shame because of something that was done to you. Either way, your shame weighs you down because it separates you from the life of the community. When you live with this kind of shame, joy feels difficult, maybe impossible. For the remaining third of the world who live in individualistic cultures, shame is your internal feeling of, of a lack of self worth. Again, because of what you've done or because of what was done to you, you sense that you are not worthy of love or admiration or value. This is also such a deep rooted feeling that goes beyond explanation and can't be simply solved, can't be addressed. Often, you feel like you can't even bring it up, you can't even think about it because it's such a multifaceted knot that you're scared to start pulling at the threads of it, and so you leave it alone and hide it deep within you. When you live like with that kind of shame, joy feels difficult, if not impossible, Regret, on the other hand, is something different, but is connected to shame. Regret is always about the past, things that, again, we we did, or that we should have done but didn't do. Regret is about the things that were done to us, that we didn't give permission for, or that we wish would not have happened. Regret. Is about the things that we longed for and wished we would have had, but they were never given to us. Experiences of shame and of our past regrets, these negative and emotion, emotions and experiences massively influence our lives. They significantly affect the way that we are able to hope for the future, what Pastor Harrison talked about last week, but they also destroy our joy In the present, it's important to note before we move on that shame and regret are not redemptive. What I mean by that is that shame and regret will never lead to healing or to wholeness. Shame and regret are part of the sin of our world, the sin nature, the sinfulness of our world. They're perversions or a twisting of God's good creation. In other words, shame and regret are a part of our sin nature. They're like a cancer. There's no such thing as having a good cancer. You can have one that's a little less worse, but none of them are good. Sin does not create new things. Sin twists and sours and damages God's good creation. Furthermore, shame and regret form a cycle They build on themselves and they drag us further and further down into a vicious cycle of damage. Shame and regret and, of course, other sins as well damage us psychologically. Sin damages us socially and culturally between persons. Sin can even damage us genetically with disease, with predisposition to violence and addiction. So what are we to do? About all of this. Well, it's Advent, so let's look back to the first coming of Jesus. When Jesus was here, we sometimes forget that though the world was very different and the pictures that we see and people dressed differently, that people still experience the same troubles that we do. People knew shame, they knew regret. They knew brokenness within themselves and brokenness within relationships. But Jesus showed people so many examples of the coming kingdom of God. He didn't just talk about them. He embodied them and shared them. Jesus provided physical healing, healing for blind people, helping lame people to walk. Jesus offered relationship healing. He helped his disciples to get along with one another. He brought Samaritans and Jews together, people who hated one another. Jesus offered spiritual and psychological healing. He drove out demons. He invited prostitutes and tax collectors, again, social outcasts, to be a part of his family, to be loved by him. And Jesus offered forgiveness, both to particular individuals and on the cross to all people. Jesus knew then and knows now how we are damaged by sin. And he provided God's healing in all kinds of areas. Do you ever wonder why people were drawn to Jesus, just how that worked? Or maybe you wish that Jesus would come back or or that maybe someone would do those same kinds of things that Jesus did today. Maybe even in your own life. It may seem like the miracles that Jesus did are your only hope today. Because somehow when Jesus was with people, he was able to fill their lives with joy. And your life is not filled with joy. How is it that people, when Jesus was with them, could taste the kingdom of God in their ordinary lives? Well, this is how. Joy, the joy from God, always begins with a gift. Sometimes among people, among one another, joy begins with a gift that we give one another. But always in our relationship with God, joy begins with a gift that God gives to us. A gift that we receive. Now, some of us who have lived in collectivist cultures or who have experienced collectivist cultures can help the rest of our congregation here because we know something about a gift that other people do not. We know that a gift, any gift, is not just something in and of itself that we receive, but a gift is an invitation to a deeper relationship. Giving and receiving isn't a momentary thing, it's not a transactional thing or a social obligation. It's an invitation to a deeper relationship. And so at the beginning of our relationship with God, the beginning of our relationship with anyone, we begin to be joyful because of the things that we receive, the things that God does for us, the gifts that he gives us. Maybe it's a small prayer or hope that is answered. Maybe it's a loving family member, sibling. Or friend who cares for us, even though they don't have to. Maybe it's someone who's always there when we need them. The joy of the Lord always begins with a gift that we don't deserve, but that God gives us anyway. As we grow deeper in any relationship, what happens is that we begin not only to be thankful for the gifts that God gives or the gifts that someone else gives but well, we begin to value the person more than the things that they give us. In fact, if we had, when relationships grow, we get to the point where if we, had the per, if we had the gift without the person, we wouldn't be as joyful. Imagine for a moment that you had to pick between the gifts that are under the Christmas tree waiting for you or the people you love and care about who are around the Christmas tree with you. If you could only have one, Which would you pick? I'm going to boldly suggest to you that only a child would pick the gifts over their loved ones. Why? Because a child is immature. A gift is a good thing. And a child values the gift more than the giver. But as we mature in relationships with one another... And as we grow deeper in our relationship with God, we learn that the relationship which brought forth the gift is so much better than the gift itself. It was the relationship that produced the joy from the start, and it's the relationship that continues to produce the joy. We need to receive good things from God. We need to receive good things from others. But the completion of our joy is in loving the other person fully for who they are, not for what they do for us. This is God's clear love to us. It's not what we do for him, but because of who we are. This is the deepest kind of love and the greatest kind of joy. God loves us because of who he is and because he created us in his image. Not because of how hard we try or how good we do. Often God loves us despite what we do. So what would it look like for you to come home and to find God there? Sitting in your lazy boy, if you're so lucky to have a lazy boy. Sitting in your living room. What would it look like to find God at home waiting for you? And the joy of the Lord waiting for you. Paul gently and graciously offers out the joy of God to hurting people in this text that we read together. We finished at verse 22, and then verse 23, the very last verses say, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the last words he says to that church. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. To paraphrase, Paul says, May God sanctify you. May he make you holy and special inside and outside. Within yourself, within the brokenness and shame that is within you, and outside, within the brokenness and shame within your social and cultural situation. May your spirit, soul, and body, in other words, may all of you, be kept blameless. What's blame? Blame is that negative emotion that we receive from others that builds shame and separation. Paul says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Not you will do it. God will make this happen. He will sanctify you inside and out. He will keep all of you blameless and without shame. The only question is your response and my response. Nowhere in Scripture, in our experiences, does the action of God lead us to question God's character. It doesn't mean that we can't question God's character. It doesn't mean that we don't question God's character. When we live with shame, when we live with regret, we question everything. And everyone in our lives. But Paul simply reminds us that questioning God's character has not stood up over time. God is faithful, He has been proven faithful, and He will do it. Paul says this not based on his own life, but on God's work in history. The Christmas story is about God entering into the shame and regret of His people. Israel had been once been great among the nations, but now they were the least. They were crushed under Rome's thumb. But more than that, God came for all people, for all nations, not just for one. Coming to lift up one person on top of everyone else just redistributes shame. It just makes, creates new regrets, but for different people. For whoever's on the bottom next or the bottom now. This is why River Park welcomes everyone to worship God and to know Him. Because Jesus welcomed everyone to worship God and to know the joy of God's love and God's family. You see, whenever we create barriers, whether between people or barriers in our own hearts, shame increases. But Jesus came to break down barriers. And even as he went to heaven, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is still here to do that same work. This is why the uh, reformer, Martin Luther, said that this time of year, we celebrate the triple advent, he called it, of our Lord. We celebrate Jesus' arrival in the manger. We celebrate Jesus' second coming in glory, which is we're waiting for still, but looking forward to. And we experience God's presence in our hearts now. Why is this important? Because God brought joy to our spiritual ancestors, to our spiritual parents and grandparents. God, the Bible says that God will bring joy when he returns again with his kingdom and his glory. And the Bible says that God cares even enough about you to bring joy to your heart as well. How does God do it? Well, very simply, God serves us. God serves us. He doesn't have to serve us. That's not his job. He doesn't do it out of need or necessity, but out of love and care out of an abundance of himself and his own joy. God serves us. God doesn't give us everything we ask for or beg for in the same way that a loving parent doesn't give, doesn't say yes to all of their child's demands. But God knows you perfectly. And so he knows how to give you what is best. Even as you live and we live, in a broken and hurting world. When we receive a gift from God, we are all invited into deeper relationship with him and with others around us. And when we receive a gift from God, we look up from our own needs, even if just for a brief moment. And we have our hearts opened to share with others and to return God's love and God's joy to him. When we get to know others and begin to give to them what they need, God's joy will be completed in us and our joy will grow. I said earlier that shame and regret are not redemptive, that they're cancer and form this vicious cycle that build on themselves to drag us further and further down. Joy works exactly the same way. Joy works in the same way but goes in exact in the opposite direction joy is god's solution to shame and regret joy begins with some initial gift and that gift is an invitation into a deeper relationship and as that relationship grows joy grows joy becomes becomes circular it's a new vector or a new path for growth or healing God shows us how choosing to serve and give leads to joy, and then joy leads us to serve and to give more. And serving and giving leads to more joy, and then joy leads us to serve and to give more, and on and on it goes. God serves us perfectly. He begins serving us with a big joy and a perfect joy. Our service to others begins so very small and immaturely. We give gifts to others that we realize later were just the thing we wanted to give, not the thing they needed. But God's perfect joy is based on who we are, not on what we've done for him. So as our joy grows, we more fully love and understand and serve others, not for what they do for us but for who they are. And then we receive more joy from God and from others in return. And we're able to serve and love others better. And on and on it goes. In a recent book, Christian Baragar, a uh, Christian biologist, he defines agape love this way. He says, It's precisely in the servanthood, the suffering and the death of Jesus, that we see God's definitive account of what constitutes agape love. And this is what he says it is. Namely, agape love is self-giving. Specifically, self-giving to God and self-giving for the well-being of others, including even strangers and enemies. That's the surprising thing about Christian joy, that we can only find it when we give ourselves away. This is why Jesus told so many parables about the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll find that time and time again, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like someone who went and found a treasure. And when they found it, they gave away everything they had just so that they could have it. That when we give ourselves away, we find the joy of the kingdom of God. Nelica found joy in giving to her husband every day for 40 years people with disabilities find joy when they serve one another likewise friends and mentors find joy when they serve people with disabilities at friendship ministry joy is not about our situation joy is about the depth of our relationships i'm going to close in just a minute and i'll tell you a story and then we'll close in prayer but Before the story, I just want to invite you to reflect and wonder for a moment at all the joy you have robbed yourself of when you were looking for happiness in your situation. And meanwhile, there were people all around you who were also looking for joy, who were also waiting for joy. And maybe they were waiting for you to initiate, even though you didn't know it. Maybe you both were waiting for God to initiate. This is the case of the first Christmas. People were looking for hope and for joy, for peace and for love. They said the word that they had for that was a Messiah. They knew they were waiting and looking for something. But they didn't know what they were looking for. They didn't know who they were looking for. Not until Jesus was born. Until he appeared to them. Until God took the first step. So here's the story and then we'll close. And again, I invite you to reflect on what you may have missed. This is a tired old story that I'm sure some of you have heard before about a man whose house is flooded so badly that he has to crawl out onto his roof. And he's stuck on the roof while the water is all around his house and on the roof he prays, God, please save me. Only after a few minutes, he hears an announcement coming from a building on, a, a, on the other side of his neighborhood. It says, if you're stuck, call out for help. We're coming. And the man thinks to himself, oh, I don't need their help. God will save me. A few hours later, a military helicopter comes and finds the man and they come to rescue him from the roof and he says, oh, no, thanks. I don't need your help. God will save me. I'll stay. And then night falls and it gets dark and cold and he's shivering and he's still wet As if by some miracle, his neighbor comes by in a little boat and he's got one of those huge flashlights and he finds him on the roof and he says, Come on down, join me in the boat. And the man says, No, thanks. God, God will save me. I'll be fine. And then he dies later that night. He gets to heaven and he asks God, Why didn't you save me? And God looks at him and he says, I sent that announcement. I sent the military. I sent your neighbor. You refused to be saved. Now, here's the trick as we close. When we look back on our lives and we realize all the things that we have missed, that very quickly can lead us to regret, which we talked about earlier and we're not gonna cover again. But when we look back and see the things that we've missed, there is an opportunity for us to focus our hearts Not on what has already happened, but on what God is offering us now in the present. We don't have the opportunity or the luxury of a time machine to go back and change the past. We did a little game at youth group last week. And not even all the kids, if they had a time machine, would want to go back and change the past When we see those things that we've missed, our temptation may be to go back and live in the past with regret. But God is inviting us to live in the present, now, with the gifts that he has for us and the people that he has for us, the joy that he has for us as we serve one another and as we are served by one another. God has already served us He has sent us messages. He has sent us protection. He has given us neighbors and friends. He has given us a church. We have missed many of the announcements. We have missed many of the opportunities that God has given us. But we're not dead yet. And God is not done with us yet. He is continuing to reach out in love to invite us deeper into joy. God has already sent his son to serve humanity. And now, he is sending you. But he's not sending you alone. He's not sending you with a task that you can't do with yourself, by yourself. He's sending Christ in you and Christ with you. And Christ is faithful. He will do it. Let's come to God in prayer. God, we come to you this morning. Our temptation is to live in the past, to live in missed opportunities. Our temptation is to let the sorrow and the shame of the past and of the present define our present and our future. But God, help us to fix our eyes on you this Advent, to experience your love for us, to see the ways in which you have served us and the way in which you continue to serve us even now. God, build in us the joy that comes from receiving gifts from you. And build in us, Lord, the joy that comes from knowing and being known by the giver of those gifts. God, we pray all these things, not because we are worthy of them, but because of your great love for us and your Son, Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.